Peso and welcome to the Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How's it going, mate? Do you have a good Christmas? Yeah, not bad. Yeah, excellent Christmas. You? you? Yes, good, thank you. Nice to be back on the uh, on the pod. It is, yeah. Kerry Collins, great guest as well. Friend of yours? Yeah, known Kerry for a while. Um, we talk about how we met and uh, I was so lucky to be sort of um, sitting with him on a National Express coach back from London uh, just before he got a text that probably... He'd say he changed his life. Yeah, love his work. I'm a really big fan of The Tourist Trap, which is doing brilliantly in Wales at the moment. Um, Convenience as well, one of his films. And uh, yeah, just a really nice guy. Yeah, he um, he also talks about when he sort of started off doing music videos, as, as a lot of directors do, you know, producing or directing uh, Georgia Ruth's early music videos, as well as his brother's band, uh, Rusty Shackle. Yeah, Rusty Shackle, uh, they were lucky, uh, unlucky not to get into my top three, really. Um, one of my f- highlights of 2019, definitely. Yeah, talking of highlights, great episode with Dave Owens and Beth Ann Elvin um, last week. A special episode going through 2019. Uh, an amazing sort of year for Welsh music, as, as the guy said, very prolific. Um, and hopefully going into 2020, uh, we'll see loads of uh, new bands, you know, pick up the mantle that, you know, bands like Adwaith and uh, HMS Morris have left. Uh, bands like Subs, Trihu yeah. uh, Doith, uh, people like that. Um, and obviously the, the the bigger bands as well. If if we see anything from uh, Super Furries or, or Griff or any any or the Manics, yeah, as you said, uh, some great bands. You 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 know picked out Arods and um, Los Blancos. You know really sort of engaging Welsh exciting bands. If if 2020 can be as good as any when you're as good as 2019, then we're in for a real treat. Yeah, and uh, enjoy the podcast uh, as ever. Send over any feedback on Twitter. We're on at Welsh Music Pod on Facebook and Instagram at Welsh Music Podcast, um, or you can email us at at welshmusicpodcast at gmail.com and if you're enjoying our stuff um, please make sure that you uh, are kind enough to give us a review uh, you know it can be just like literally a line or two uh, or, and give us a rating on iTunes it'll boost our prominence and uh, yeah it'll do us a real favour so that'd be brilliant if you can thanks so much so Kerry thank you for joining us mate Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Kerry. Uh, really looking forward to this one. Thank you. I remember the first time I sort of heard your name or read your name was probably on Twitter. Um, I think it was for being nominated for Funday, um, your short film about a, a depressive clown. And I remember sort of being so sort of enamoured with the aesthetic. There was like a still frame or a poster and evoked like a sort of Wes Anderson sort of vibe. And I remember getting in touch with you saying, oh, mate, how do I get to see this? And, and you sent me a link to, to your Vimeo. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, not really. <laughs> I, gave, I gave away too much free stuff in my early part of my career. <laughs> so since then, we've been friends and um, a little bit of crossover in our career at some point. But yeah, going back to Fun Day, um, described by Tony Grissoni as being uh, deliciously melancholic and yeah, acquired for distribution and then nominated for a, for a BAFTA Cymru Award. So written by a really talented guy called um, Nicholas Horwood, who so I was on a scheme called Guiding Lights, which was a sort of mentoring scheme. Um, and but in a way, it was a bit like being back at uni. So you kind of met lots of other filmmakers at a similar stage of your career. And so me and Nick just kind of really connected. We kind of had similar sensibilities about the things we liked. We both really liked Monty Python and silly sort of comedy like that. Um, and he'd written this, he'd written loads of shorts, but this, he had this one kicking around. And so basically I'd just done a short film, which was commissioned by somebody, I won't name who they are because I don't want to slag people off, but it was quite an uncreative process. Um, and it was very like, you know, rigid and like, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that. And I felt really sort of restricted. I wasn't particularly happy with what came out at the end. So making fun day was really like a reaction to that. I kind of just went. I'm just going to go make something. I'm going to self-fund it and I'm going to make it for me. And, you know, no one's going to tell me what to do. I'm just going to do it. 
and see what happens um and be as creative creative as i can with it so that's kind of the initial seed of it and then i read nick's script and was just like this is amazing it's exactly what i want to do tonally and um and yeah we just made it i think it costs like 500 quid plus a lot of favors you know lots of really good friends locally in cardiff at the time helped me out with it um you know crew working for free and all that kind of stuff that you do in in the early days um and yeah it just kind of came together really really well and um kind of had a really good response and it was it was something that made, gave me a lot of confidence in my career at that early stage. Names don't come uh, much more revered in the industry uh, than Sir Kenneth Branagh, who um, I understand uh, mentored you on the Guardian Lights scheme. What was it like working with him? Yeah, I mean, amazing, obviously. Um, so Guardian Lights, was it's a really good scheme. I think they still run it. Um, it's They basically take kind of 10 people and uh, an early to intermediate part of their career and they say, okay, great, you're in. We'll pair you up with a mentor who's at the top of the industry. Um, and some of the people they've had mentoring have been absolutely incredible. And I guess I just got lucky at that time. Like I'd actually was going to be paired up with someone else. And then they said they couldn't do it because they were having a kitchen built. And <laughs> so they were too busy. Um, and so then they went, oh, but we've got Kenneth Branagh. And I was like, yeah, that'll, that's, that'll do. That's great. And yeah, it was amazing because he was, he was making Thor at the time. Um, and so part of Guiding Lights was they paid for you to kind of go and work shadow um, your mentor uh, wherever they were working and literally everybody else on the scheme their mentor was working in London <laughs> I got to go to LA um, and, and be on set of Thor when he was making Thor so it was pretty mind-blowing but it, it completely changed kind of my ambitions in my work as well because I was you know this quite inexperienced kid from a very small village in Wales on the set of Thor you know with all these amazing actors and Anthony Hopkins and all these people and and obviously Kenneth Branagh and I was just kind of like wow like this is the kind of film I want to make. Like I want to make these things with ambition and I've always liked comedy and wanted to make genre projects, but that kind of made me go, do you know what? I could, I could make this kind of thing. Like, you know, let's just, let's just go and do it. Um, so that was the initial thing for me that made me start thinking of thinking bigger with my own ideas. I haven't made thought thought two or three yet, but you know, one day. Talking of something bigger, I remember I was leaving London and I wanted to try and fill the position that I was leaving at the Sunday Times making short films and you know, I couldn't really think of anyone better than, than you in terms of what you were doing. So I remember hooking you up with uh, with, with my boss at the Sunday Times and you did a great little uh, uh, feature on a, on a meatloaf um, tribute act, if I remember rightly. But um, we were coming back, we bumped into each other on, on a bus, I think it was the first time we met face to face and... Um, and you you were telling me about a feature you were waiting to hear back from the producer on, and then you you text me when you got in saying that it's been greenlit and that feature was convenience. You know, starring Vern um, Vern Troyer, Vicky McClure, um, Ray Panthaki was that producer. Yeah, that's it's amazing that kind of you were there at that probably the most crucial moment of my of my life really of my career certainly my career. So convenience. So I I I was first assistant director on a on a really low budget film that was shot in Swansea a few years earlier um like i always had a day job like i you know don't have rich parents and things like that so i was working i was living in cheltenham at the time because my um, girlfriend who's now my wife was teaching at school so i was just temping in a school office a different school office up there and i so a friend of mine who was a, a aspiring director had managed to get some money to make a film and i was like wow that's amazing like you know you're really lucky and all that kind of stuff and he's like look i want to bring you in on it um, you know, you can either be the script supervisor or the first assistant director, which is like, you know, it's a strange choice to be given because they're two completely different things and I've done neither before. Um, but I really appreciated, you know, his name was Andrew Jones. 
really appreciate that he was like, you know, just wanted to get me in and just give me a, you know, give me a leg up as well. I thought, well, do you know what? Like, you know, even though I was a, a writer director is what I wanted to be, be doing. I thought, you know, it's one of those opportunities you kind of have to do, have to take it because you never know who you'll meet. And he had this amazing cast. It was about two homeless people and the actors playing the roles were Ray Panthaki and Brooke Kinsella, who had both been in EastEnders and stuff. Um, and they were a real life couple at the time. Um, but they were both like super talented and super nice people. Um, and so, yeah, I went down and so I had to ask for like three weeks off work of my temp job and all that, but wanted to get my temp job back afterwards, to, you know, because it was that whole thing. You can't, couldn't afford to just give it up. Luckily, my boss at the time said, yeah. Um, so I went and stayed in Swansea for a few um, few weeks and we did this thing, did this film and it was about two homeless people so it was outside the whole time and it was in November I think and it was absolutely freezing um, and it was really hard work and I hated being a first assistant director because the whole thing with that role uh, for anyone that doesn't know is the first, first assistant director is not someone who is being creative, you're the person that essentially manages the whole shoot so you keep the shoot going you keep the schedule you make sure everyone's on schedule you're the one that has to shivvy the director along and say come on come on we have to keep we have to get moving we have to do the next scene we've got to fit all this in today and xyz um so it's really stressful <laughs> and i didn't enjoy it at all um but on that i met i met ray and we got really friendly um and then i remember at the rap party i told him about this this script this idea that i had which was a comedy set in heaven <laughs> um and he was like oh my god that sounds amazing and so i sent him that and then we kind of from that point just developed ideas for about five or six years um nothing ever coming off until convenience which actually wasn't even my idea i wanted to talk to you about um music and film uh i i find um watching sort of films myself um there's so many different sort of emotions that um, a piece of music a particular piece of music when it's the right choice as well it can sort of either pull on the heartstrings, it can wrap it, ratchet up the tension in, say, a horror film. It can reconnect you with a certain part of your life. Um, how important is music uh, to you and your films? And second question would be, what would be your favourite soundtracks? Well, uh, well, music in film is incredibly important, um, obviously. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's one of those things I, I can't wait to be able to make a film one day where the where the music budget is not an issue <laughs> you can just choose all the songs you want because that's the only problem is it's really expensive to get if you just want to populate a film with all the favorite songs is really expensive and generally unable to do that but um yeah so it's incredibly important i think it can just add so much value um and kind of gives you it can completely give you a different sort of tone as well like if you've got a film that's got a really quirky score throughout then that's that gives you a certain sense a certain tone and then if you've got a film which is just filled with you know, loads of cool songs and it gives you a different sort of sense, a different sort of tone as well. Um, I actually watched an amazing film this weekend on Netflix um, called Let It Snow, which is just a, it's like a young adult Christmas film. Um, I know the director, Luke Snelling, and he's he's always made films with impeccable music choices. And this is literally almost like every 20 seconds there's a different song. And it's so like, obviously Netflix got a lot of money, um, but it's a really, really, it's it's a really good example of how brilliant music can be. It's a really fun, um, like kind of romantic comedy sort of thing. But it's but the music makes it so cool. It makes it a really cool film. So yeah, really, 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 really important. 
as for the best soundtrack, um, I don't know, really. I love John Bryan stuff. Like Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind is probably one of my favourites, I think. Around that sort of time, you were you were directing a few music videos, and that happens quite frequently in, in the career of, of film directors. Either they start there or they come back again with a much bigger budget. You directed two music videos for, for Georgia Ruth, who, who went on to win the uh, the Welsh Music Prize. Can you talk about that? So I remember first coming across Georgia's music. Um, I'd actually made a, a sh- another, li- another little short um, called Mummy's Girl which was a drama, which was quite unusual for me. But it was just thought, felt like I wanted to try my hand at something different. And this is going to really date when I made this film because I saw George's music on MySpace. <laughs> um, but I honestly can't remember the name of the track, unfortunately. Sorry, Georgia. Um, but it was, it, I just remember going, this is a perfect track for this part of the film. And so I remember messaging Georgia and just asking her if I could use the track. And I offered her a music video in return, basically. <laughs> I just said, I can't afford to pay for the track, but if you let me have the track in this film, then I will direct a music video for you you know for free which seemed like a fairly good trade and so she let me have the track and then um i did a video for ocean which was one of her early really early tracks we just went down to west wales somewhere um just went down onto the beach and just like shot it and it was a really windy day and shot it in black and white it looked great <laughs> do you um do you think like music videos do you think of them in the same way as sort of films in terms of like composition of shot or narrative anything like that you know obviously it's condensed down to three minutes but you know technically yeah i guess so i mean I honestly don't think I've ever, I'm very good at music videos. I don't think my brain works in a conceptual enough way. I tend to work really long form. I could never really do ads. Like my brain isn't, I just, I'm not good at that. I have an idea and it's something that needs to spread over 90 minutes or two hours. And that's sort of how my brain works. And I've sort of accepted that, even though the money in ads is much better. Um, (laughs) But like, I honestly can't remember the conversations we had about like what we wanted. It's just tended to be like an idea um, and a couple of like symbolic things that, that might tie into the you know the theme obviously that song was called ocean and it was we shot it on a beach which may be a little bit on the nose <laughs> but it looked great <laughs> and it was it was a really cheap way of doing it um but i remember i did another video of, uh called bones and there was a bit more symbolism in that um because of where we shot it in uh, we shot it in wentwood forest but i remember that was again just a bit of luck with that like we shot it really early on a sunday morning or something and there was all this mist hanging in the in the forest and it just it was one of those things that would have cost you know, £10,000 to actually put that mist there, but it was just there. <laughs> and um, you've collaborated uh, with your brother's band recently, uh, a video for The Bones. Yeah, well, not that recently, but um, yeah, so my brother Liam is um, the singer of Rusty Shackle. Yeah, so yeah, I've done a few videos, did their first few videos. So I did videos for him when he was in the band called The Graveyard Johnny, who I think are still going. And then when he moved to Rusty Shackle, I did their first few. So we did one in a quarry uh, where they all dressed as cowboys. <laughs> um the thing with Shackle is their whole vibe was like they wanted to have a laugh and they didn't want to take themselves too seriously. So that was quite fun. So like we did like we did like a Western in a quarry in, in Rogget near Caldicott. In fact, I've shot all of theirs around that same area. We did another one where they had like a, we did a car chase, like their, their band van gets stolen. And then we, we had a car chase around Caldicott in the night. Uh, we got stopped by the police quite a few times. <laughs> In fact, we got chased by a limo, a limo driver. <laughs> we did a lot of it in an industrial estate because obviously the roads were in. I told the police we were going to do it and said, we're shooting a music video, don't be alarmed kind of thing. And then this guy that owned a limo company in the industrial estate thought we were like, you know, scallies or trying to nick his limos, basically. So we, we were driving around in this van, even though it had like a camera attached to the front and all that. And um, he, yeah, we got chased by this limo. <laughs> this limo, they're surprisingly fast. <laughs> so moving on to comedy, you've done quite a lot of, uh, of comedy over, over the last few years. You directed season two and three of um, the satirical BBC Brexit comedy Soft Border Patrol. Yep. 
And I remember there was a, a specific clip, I think it's called Moving the Border, that like, just went viral on, on, online and you know, like 30, 30 million views in the first month. It seems to be quite sort of um, prevalent in, in TV nowadays that, you know, I don't know whether TV shows are written with that in mind. So there's little segments that they can push online and, and, and they go viral. You know, things like Saturday Night Live has always done that. But, you know, um, the late night TV, like James Corden, those little mini segments and Jimmy Fallon and Kimmel and stuff, they're all, they seem to be written in that way. But was that something that went through your mind um, when, you were, when, you were, when you were filming that, writing that? Or? So the Soft Border Patrol and Taurus Trap, which we'll, we'll probably come on to, um, they're made by a company called The Comedy Unit, who are based in Glasgow. And they do a show called Scott Squad there. And all of those shows are, are, sh are made in the same format, which is essentially they're loads of little sketches put together, but all the sketches feature the same character rather than the same actors doing different characters in a normal sketch show. It's the same characters and there's, time, there's kind of like a theme that ties it all together. So Scott Squad is about the police force in Scotland. Uh, Tourist Trap is about the Welsh Tourist Board. And Soft Border Patrol is about a fictional border force who are trying to manage the Northern Ireland border after Brexit. So by their very nature, they are sketches essentially. But in this sort of social media age yeah you know it seems like everybody wants to be able to get a clip that two minutes long that is a really easy sell even when things like tourist trap you know a, f a five minute clip gets cut down to two minutes which just has the basic essence of the sketch and then that goes online subtitled so people don't even have to have the volume on you know it's, <laughs> it's very much part of the the way of marketing it now i guess but that clip moving the border i think just just really hit a nerve because the, so the whole gag with it was this bunch of lads who were moving the border moving the sign that said welcome to northern ireland and they were moving it moving it out basically to make Northern Ireland bigger and it was just one of those things that really hit a nerve like thousands of the comments on it were from people in America you know half of them saying yeah we should do this on the Mexico border and then and then the other half saying yeah we should pull it the other way so Mexico gets a bit like it was just like borders are quite quite a big thing at the moment in politics so yeah, they are. Um, it was just one of those things I think it was I'd, certainly when we shot it I mean I thought it was funny the guys in it are brilliant but I didn't necessarily think it was gonna you just never know what's gonna hit a nerve I guess we had a coffee last year and you were telling me that you were writing this female uh, superhero comedy and you're talking about like you know spec scripts don't get bought anymore but yours did yeah um like i said earlier i've, re I've always liked big ideas and big genre com commercial comedy ideas and i absolutely love melissa mccarthy i just think she's really 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 funny um really talented and quite underrated although obviously now she's been oscar nominated not so underrated but <laughs> i just remember thinking uh, i think i'd watch spy or something like that paul feek film and that's just my kind of thing i love that kind of that kind of tone and um i just thought miss mccarthy would be amazing in a superhero film and so I, that was the initial seed of the idea um and and it's sort of then expanded so uh, the idea is a superhero who gets pregnant and needs to take nine months off work and then kind of her like shitty sister has to take over her job like her her petty criminal bad attitude sister who was in my head was melissa mccarthy and um, that was kind of the idea it was actually inspired by so what happened when when uh when my wife, when we had our first kid, she was sort of forced out of her job. So I won't say where she worked, but it was quite a prevalent organisation where it should never have happened. Um, and they kind of basically said, oh, you can't really be a mum and work here, like work in this kind of organisation. Um, so that was the initial, that was sort of the theme behind it really, was like it was exploring, you know, how women are still treated when they want to have a baby, like when they, you know, still treated in the workplace. Um, and yeah, incredibly, like it's for something that had such a personal idea behind it, um, but I just wrote it, you know, I didn't get too caught up in that. I just, that was the idea behind it. And I just wrote this big, this big script without any real worry about budget and stuff like that. And then 
it got picked up uh, by a production company in in LA and they bought the option on it and paid me to do a rewrite and stuff and then but then seems to be a little theme development here then what happened was <laughs> they were they were moving they were leaving their studio deal joining another studio deal which is an incredibly complicated and litigious process so in the end they didn't really do anything with it in that period that they had it and then the rights came back to me so I'm now developing it as a TV show instead but yeah it's one of those things where I was hoping I'd be able to get it made with Melissa McCarthy. They sent me a cast list once saying, we think Melissa McCarthy would be great for this. And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> but she's now, I actually saw something the other day, Melissa McCarthy's doing a superhero comedy on Netflix. <laughs> so, oh. um, talking of superheroes, um, you're writing about a different kind of superhero altogether with uh, Supergran, um, an action comedy family adventure uh, for Sarah Brocklehurst Productions. Yeah, so um, Supergran was like on TV when I was a kid. Amazing. Just one of those iconic things of, of our generation, I think. Um, it was actually so, so set, yeah, so the initial idea, again, I just kind of thought after Super Sisters had kind of, it was sort of doing its thing at that time, which was the other one I sold. I just thought there's not that many British superheroes. And then I thought about Super Grand and there's like Banana Man yeah, and yeah. things like that. <laughs> so yeah, I just kind of inquired and the rights were available. And so I picked up the rights uh, on like a shopping agreement and just kind of said, can I just have them for like a few months and see if I can get some money in to actually option them properly. And, and luckily I was able to do that. And then, so yeah, Sarah, um, who's a brilliant producer, has come on board to, to kind of help drive it forward now and yeah hopefully it'll, so that's, that's what I'm doing at the moment just writing that I wanted to make her Welsh but I didn't think I was going to fly so I was gonna, she is Scottish it's canon I have to stick with it <laughs> yeah talking of Welsh and you, you, you brought up earlier but Tourist Trap second series now um, loads of Welsh music featured throughout and, and you're directing that how's that going? yeah it's great it's just it's so much fun it's just brilliant to be able to do something in Wales you know, with a really great cast and with loads of Welsh talent and something that really celebrates Wales but also like doesn't take itself too seriously so like I remember the so as I said, the, so the production company of that are based in Glasgow. So and when I first um, my agent sent me the thing saying you know they wanted to meet about it, and honestly my initial reaction was oh, this is going to be like you know taking the piss out of Welsh people, saying Welsh people are thick and all this sort of stuff. The way that Welsh people are always depicted, you know, by people who are not from Wales. But when I met them, they're, they're just they're just really down to earth guys. They're just you know they're all from Glasgow. They're very working class. They're very like you know they're just kind of they they're not really of they're not they weren't the sort of people I thought <laughs> they were going to be kind of thing. Not typical. TV people exactly yeah so um, you know they're a really great bunch of people to work with and they kind of had exactly the same thing was they didn't want it to be and obviously BBC Wales didn't want it to be taking the piss out of Welsh people they wanted it to be like a celebration of Welsh identity but also showing that you know there are things that we we all laugh at about being Welsh you know and that's just part of it yeah. <laughs> um, but what I did want it to be was just be all like you know leeks and sheep and the, the cliches and thankfully that's not what they wanted to do so yeah, it's been great, really great fun and had a really great cast on it. And um, yeah, lots and lots of Welsh music, which is lots of fun on it. Plans for season three? After us, BBC Wales, hope so. <laughs> so um, what's been the highlight in terms of um, of the Welsh music? You talked about earlier finding the right tune for, for the right feeling and the right moment. The whole thing with Tourist Trap is it's about the Welsh tourism agency called Wow Wales. So it's like a sort of, you know, mock documentary thing. So we wanted to have like a different track to open every app and then a different track to close every app. And then there's like a little, we have like a sort of ra a radio DJ who talks talks about stuff that's going on in the episode and so we have like another little hit of him in the middle the whole idea is basically you have like three Welsh tracks per ep and then finding the right track that sort of also ties into the theme of whatever you're seeing in the ep you know it's, it's quite you need to have quite an exhaustive knowledge of, of Welsh music and I'm not enough of an anorak I think but uh, there was a great little moment where so we we had an episode in the first series where Derek Brockway came in and said oh it's pissing down which was just like a highlight of my career getting Derek Brockway to say it's pissing down and that was the final thing in the ep and so we wanted to cut straight to a, a song then and I just didn't know what song to put there 
and then so I came we were we were editing in Glasgow at the time and I came back home to Wales for the weekend and I was playing Gorky's in the car and my six-year-old son heard my glow and he said oh that means it's raining and because I don't speak Welsh or I didn't I'm, I'm learning and I was like oh my god that's amazing that's the track that's the, and it's got to cut in right at that point and that's amazing oh my god it was like a real brilliant moment lightning bolt moment and it also really really inspired me to start learning Welsh and Ellis James who's uh, hugely popular on the Welsh uh, comedy scene who was uh, memorably in the tourist trap um, massive Gorky's fan as well have you spoken with him about that can't remember whether he told me this or whether I just read it in his book or something or maybe heard I think maybe I heard it on his podcast with John Robbins but um, that the story about him and Gorky's and like how he was obsessed with Gorky's and he sort of followed them everywhere and, and then like he just kept having these random things where you know, he'll tell it much better than me so it's probably worth getting him on <laughs> but we'd love to see him mate yeah he's, uh, his, he's, his stories about Gorky's and there's and the the way it escalates is absolutely brilliant. So yeah, uh, I don't think I spoke to him about it, but he's uh, yeah, he's uh, his story about it is well worth getting on. Definitely, he must have been pleased that it was on the episode anyway. So Kerry, at this point, we tend to um, to ask our guests about their favourite Welsh album and then sort of induct it into into a Welsh Music Hall of Fame. Um, what's what's your choice? This was a really hard one. Like I said to you on. <laughs> On the text, it was like choosing my favourite Welsh album is probably harder than choosing a name for my kids. <laughs> um, so, I mean, Gorky's Barrafundle was one right up there. Rings Around the World by Furies, but the one I went for in the end was Word Gets Around by the Stereophonics. Okay, so um, a few debut uh, record we've had so far. Yeah, we've had um, Big Three by uh, Sixty Foot Dolls, Dave Owen's choice. Uh, we've had uh, Declaration, Kate, by, Declaration the by the Alarm, that was Patrick Jones's choice, and Kate Le Bon, oh, um, Me Oh My. This is something we've spoken about before, actually, um, about it being the very sort of essence of a band, the sort of most ex- exciting period uh, when they're just starting off. Uh, I know Kelly's gone on the record of saying that... Um, it's the one that the diehard Stereophonics fans always choose and think they'll never better. Is this at their most exciting and, and at their best, really? I think so, yeah. I think it all comes down to, I suppose, just inevitably, the debut album is probably the first thing you hear from a band. So it's your first connection with a band. So for you, it's probably always going to be the you know an indelible link that you can't ever break you know i had the same thing with oasis with um definitely maybe you know i remember having that same sort of visceral reaction like i said you know obviously that was a few a few years earlier but growing up in south wales as a man city fan with a mancunian dad who was uh you know with and we had nothing to shout about and then the only thing we had to shout about was that oasis supported man city <laughs> was the, you know, suddenly it made it sort of cool to be a man city fan for a while um but that um, that you know definitely maybe really 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 spoke to me in a way that nothing else had at that point and again probably because of my age like you know when I was about 15 or something when that came out so you know it's I guess inevitably that's the age where you really start taking a massive interest in music and stuff like that um so I think that's a big part of it but yeah so for me where it gets around you know it was timing as much as as the probably the place I was at in my life and all those sorts of things combined can you remember when you first heard it yeah I can actually so I first heard it probably I think probably it was already released the first thing I ever heard of the phonics was I think they were doing a Hillsborough benefit gig or something and it was on telly it was a Sunday morning and they weren't famous at this point. So they played like one track, you know, they, they, I can't remember who was headlining, but they played like one track of the earlier bands in the day and they played Local Boy in the Photograph. And I just remember going, who the hell is this? Like, oh my God. And I didn't know they were Welsh or anything at that stage, you know. And then I just remember thinking like, just, you know, trying to find out who they were. And obviously this was pre-Google. <laughs> so like, I can't even remember how I found out who they were. Obviously it said their name. And so sort of went straight to Our Price in Newport, which was you know, the go-to place at the time and bought the album. And then just, yeah, it just had like a really visceral response to it. Like it was, like I said, probably 
partly my age. I was I would have been eighteen, I think, at the time. But there was just something about the rawness of it and the the energy of it and definitely something about the welshness of it that really i connected with that was for me the same sort of thing it was um you know the lyrics basically they were you know the tales of the small town life in kumaman um but you know there's observations and and watching people they're so relatable as well and it's like everyone's got a sort of um a sort of story like that so it's not just like a welsh thing it's it's kind of any small town any sort of um area in, in the uk um, and I think a former colleague of mine, Nathan Bevan, you know, said it so eloquently that um, Kelly's lyrics were like Dylan Thomas was decibels. They chronicled the minutiae of the working class culture in the in the ex- mining community. Or to take a cinematic view, the Ken Loach kitchen sink drama sort of style. Do you think that sort of um, thing resonated with you in terms of like your cinematic sort of mindset? Yeah, definitely. Something about the the storytelling of the lyrics. In fact, you, in fact, one of the first things I ever remember learning about Hysteriophonics was that Kelly Jones had, had a grant to write a script just before they got signed. So he was like, you know, he could have ended up as a scriptwriter instead of a world famous musician. <laughs> um, it definitely the working class thing was a big thing for me. So like I said, you know, I've got a Mancunian dad, you know, I grew up, I was born in Pontypool. We lived in, in Crossy Kiliog in Cumbran on a council estate for a good few years. And you know, eventually we moved to like Caldicott and stuff and, you know, sort of, it's not, you know, it's, it's a bit more of a middle class area, but it was, we weren't, we were never like well off and stuff it was still we still lived you know five of us in a three-bedroom house and all that sort of thing so it was definitely something about the working class thing and again like you said it's not just a welsh thing it really resonated with actually like where my dad's family were from so you know a lot of them live in macclesfield in cheshire just totally working class background like that's we don't have any sort of wealth or there's nothing else in the family so it was that was a big part of it definitely it was and i and i lived i grew a lot of my life i spent um in port Stewart, which is a really small little village just outside caldicott and that you know that small town stuff even though it wasn't in the valleys the the, the minutiae of the small town gossip and the, the stories and when somebody dies the drama of that and all that kind of stuff like you know that really spoke to me but I also like definitely like I said the Welshness thing so I had like a really weird relationship with my Welshness growing up because both my parents were English I spent a lot of my early years we kind of like I started in Pontypool and we moved further and further towards England so most of my life was spent in Port Stewart which is you know three miles from the border like it's really really close full of English people so and this was a time when Welsh was not on the curriculum in school like a very anglicized culture you know my dad once sent me to school on St David's Day wearing an England Italian 90 tracksuit like you know <laughs> it's a proper shit house thing to do but you know and I've still we've still got the photo like which I sort of cringe at now but so I I kind of like never felt that Welsh like it was really I had sort of just a I probably felt more Mancunian like I I that, I, I angled more towards that growing up because that's what my dad was and then we had Oasis and you know that was like those are the things that when I was trying to find my place in the world but word gets around really really suddenly went bang like no you're Welsh like it and I can't really say why it was just something about it finding out they were Welsh and and knowing that I was Welsh and I lived I'd lived my whole life in Wales and I was born in Wales that was like a real like oh my god like almost like I've got something in common with these guys like that made that was a really big thing for me um you mentioned about going to LA on the set of Thor and that was kind of you opened your eyes that these things were possible do you think that had anything to do with it there was like someone from a similar sort of community you know a couple of you know miles down the road that they were doing something important special having a voice do you think that had anything to do with it yeah yeah probably yeah like I, I remember you know probably also like I was in a band at the time you know like a teenage band trying to you know want it they, they were doing what I wanted to do like you know they were they'd achieved 
what seemed impossible, which was like being a small town band and they, you know, got signed to V2 Records, you know, and they like got a massive record deal. And it was, that was the dream, like for anyone who's, who's growing up and trying to be in a band and trying to, you know, make music and stuff. Because before I did anything film wise, I was, you know, I wrote lyrics and I wanted to be a band and, you know, but I could never sing and I was like, wasn't that good on the guitar. So I played bass and all that. Like that was, that was, it was never going to happen for me that. Um, but, but yeah, definitely seeing like working class Welsh boys achieving that was a huge thing that made me go, oh wow, we can, we can do this actually. Like we can, we can kind of reach bigger. Um, one thing that struck me um, as incredible uh, whilst researching and listening to the album is the sort of remarkable maturity of um, Kelly's songwriting. Uh, he's only 18 when he's writing Word Gets Around. Um, obviously, um, you were saying about he used to be on script writing courses, studying uh, the likes of like Ken Loach, Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick. There's bits of Jimmy McGovern uh, coming through in his writing. And there's parallels between them and the Manics in terms of like sort of deriding that small town mentality at the time, uh, at times, and then sort of at the same time loving where they come from. And it ties in nicely with what you were saying about um, Oasis and uh, Manchester and that sort of thing. Um, me and Jamie went to see um, Liam Gallagher um, at the Motor Point on Monday night. He starts off with Rock and Roll Star. Now, that's the sort of song that you can only write. Like Noel could only write, he was on the dole in his bedroom with dreams of rock and roll stardom. He'd been laughed at writing a song like that, you know, a few years down the line into his career. Do you think um, this that Kelly couldn't write that way anymore once he had hit maybe the second album and he'd become a star? I don't know. That's like the eternal question, isn't it? You know, the difficult second album and the how do you keep an edge when your life is great? <laughs> how can you, you know, how do you have that hunger? How do you, in a way, it's like, there's a lot of, you know, they, they talk about it with like football, like a lot, you know, like how they say some players, you know, they always say like Theo Walcott's an example and I'm not digging him out at all, but just I remember reading an article about this saying that because Theo Walcott was from a kind of very well-to-do family, he never had the hunger that matched his ability like he's an incredibly talented player but he didn't have the hunger that Wayne Rooney had because Wayne Rooney came from a much harder place where he needed it like he absolutely in his bones needed to be able to make the most of his ability and he did you know um and then I suppose in a way like when when you when you've made a huge success how do you how do you keep writing about yeah you can't keep writing about small time stuff then when your life is not about that I suppose um, I, I certainly think he still did like performance and cocktails and stuff. Like I still, it didn't have the same effect on me, but you know, I think there's, he's still able to create something at that stage. I mean, I mean, like people tend to think that they became sort of stars overnight in like 97. I mean, they'd been around since the early nineties in sort of various forms. And um, just the sheer level of records that were being sold in the nineties is staggering. So where it gets around went double platinum, 600,000 sold. Uh, performance and cocktails, one and a half million, you know, they just went meteoric, you know, in a two, three years. What was your sort of memories of that sort of Britpop era? I mean, I know me and James are sort of big fans of it, unashamedly really, but it gets a bit of a mixed sort of reaction now. Yeah, no, I was bang up for it. <laughs> it's like, again, again, I think it's timing, isn't it? You know, I was like 17, like this, you know, at that peak Britpop, I was, I was just started sixth form, like, you know, we were just started just getting old enough to go to pubs and clubs and stuff like that. And again, I suppose in the same way, it's probably the, about 
as British as I've ever felt was Britpop. Whereas now, you know, I couldn't feel less, I couldn't feel further away from being British, you know, as I do now. Um, you know, now I just feel Welsh and that's it. <laughs> I don't want any part of the rest of it. I, th- uh, I think there's like, like Britpop, you know, it's, it's an era as opposed to a genre, but it gets sort of like mixed up. And, and the same can be said about Cool Cymru and, you know, there's nothing that ties the phonics to Super Furries. Yeah, it's like everyone's sort of co-opted under the sort of same umbrella when they're, vastly different i suppose yeah absolutely no completely it's um it just felt like a, i suppose again a, a timing time you know it coincided with a very optimistic time in the country like you know, there was you know, new labor new labor like it was all about things can only get better all that yeah. sort of like it felt like that like it yeah. felt like a great time to be alive you know <laughs> opening line of uh of, of word gets around standing at the bus stop with my shopping in my hands not very rock and roll. And I think Kelly sort of admitted to that, but that sort of like anti rock and roll statement is very rock and roll in his way as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But again, you kind of, you know, when that chorus kicks in, you don't really care what he's singing about. <laughs> You're just like, this is amazing. <laughs> it's just the, it's so anthemic. Um, but again, like it's so, it was so low key. I loved how low key it was. Like it wasn't like I'm a rock and roll star, you know, it's it. And in a way, by that point, you know, when was that? Was it 97? You know, already by that point, like the whole Oasis, like I'm a rock star, I'm better than everyone else thing was already wearing a bit thin. So the fact that, you know, there's these, these like working class Welsh lads who are just like, I'm standing at the bus stop with my shopping in my hand. Like it's so low key. It's just, it's just class. It's genius. Like it's, it makes you immediately sort of identify. That's where I grew up. I grew up in a, you know, like I said, mostly in Port Stewart, which is a a very small village where you have to get the, before you could drive, you had to get the bus to go anywhere. So I would have stood at the bus stop with my shopping in my hand quite regularly. I mean, that was my first uh, entry point into uh, the Phonics um, A Thousand Trees. And I think it's absolutely perfect as the opening track on the album in terms of it starts sort of quite low key. Uh, it's just Kelly's riff starting off. It feels like, I always get that f- a feeling in my head that it's him busking in the street. And then yeah, as soon yeah. as it's like when the school goes running and then Stuart's drums kick in, it's just perfect, you know. Yeah, again, it sort of it lulls you to a false sense of security almost. Like you don't quite know yet what's going to be and then bang, like it hits you and you're just like, okay, yeah, now, now I get these. <laughs> I remember reading, you know, or hearing a while ago that they talked about, like or Kelly talked about the chorus and he had it for, an eight, for a while. He, you know, he took it off the back of a, a, a matchbox, you know, and he takes one tree to make a thousand matches. And that's just like the perfect metaphor for rumours spreading around a, a small town. There seems to be a lot of things that he sort of observed and, and taken um, in, in the album. What stands out for you in terms of the, 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 the lyric writing? I mean, yeah, the storytelling, again, as I, as I said earlier, the for someone who wanted to, who want, was all, or at that point was kind of going from music towards wanting to write films and things. And, you know, it's just like, man, this guy could, this guy's doing both <laughs> in the same medium. It's amazing. Um, like same size feet. There's something about just, you know, literally the line, same size feet and what they're talking about is so, I don't know, I feel like it's one of the most genius lines. Like, cause it's just, it's such an interesting way of talking about what he's talking about um, without saying it, like without being explicit and on the nose, just saying, got the same size feet like just kind of it sort of sends a bit of a chill when you think about that like when you actually think about what he's talking about yeah i was, I was listening to the deluxe version on a bit like the 60 foot dolls in the first episode there's a real sort of treasure trove of stuff on the second disc and um i usually like sort of concise albums like 10 10 songs you're in and out within half an hour but 
I think you could add um, carrot cake and wine and Raymond shop certainly to word gets around and it wouldn't affect the, the tone, the sort of like um, the themes or, or sound or anything. You know, what, what, do you, yeah. what do you think? I mean, that was always a big part of buying music in those days as well, wasn't it? It was what B-sides are on the single. So like yeah. you'd have the album, then you'd buy the singles and it would be what B-sides on the singles. Like Oasis had that incredible run of B-sides on their first, you know, of singles from the first couple of albums, which were just amazing. And I feel like Stereophonics had the same thing. Like, you know, this, yeah, the, yeah, funny enough, I was listening to the deluxe version as well earlier. I forgot that they were B-sides. I was just like, oh, these, because they just felt like part of the album. Did you watch the band live around this sort of time? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> quite a lot. So it was, um, so my, my girlfriend at the time was, um, she was a follower. So she was one of those people that when she was like, when she was a few years younger, used to follow Take That Around and all the boy bands. So she would like, She'd go wherever, she'd find out which hotel they were staying in and she would, I don't know, she had all these tricks of, of knowing where they were so she could turn up at the right time. By this point, she'd grown out of Take That, but she was, so when we kind of, we had shared this thing with the phonics, like both discovering them at the same time, whatever, she was, she worked in our price in Newport and it was, she was like, right, we're, we're going to go to Commandment. They only live in, you know, it's not far away. We're, we're going to go up and we'll, we'll find where they live. And I was just like, behave, like, you know, it's never going to happen. Like, <laughs> She's like, no, we'll do it. So she's like, right, we'll go on Sunday. So we planned it. We went 31st of August, 1997. Do you know what else happened that day? Princess Diana died. Princess Diana ah. died. <laughs> My mum woke me up at about 6.30 in the morning saying, Princess Diana's dead. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, what, <laughs> what, how am I meant to feel about that? Like, you know, we're not big royalists or anything. I don't really know why she, why she was waking me up to tell me that. And I was just like, yeah, but I'm going to see the Stereophonics today. And she was like, what, they're doing a gig? I was like, no, let's go to their house. She's like, well, you can't go now. Princess Diana's died. I was like, do you think they're really big fans of Princess Diana? I don't know. Like, and, and I genuinely had a bit of a like, should we go or not? Because <laughs> it seemed like such a monumental event. But yeah, my then girlfriend was like, no, we're going. Like, because that's just what, you know, that's what people who have of that mindset of following bands do. They're like, you know, you don't miss an opportunity. So we went up um, and it was like being in some sort of spy film. It was like mad. She literally like, we went, to, we stopped at the first phone box. We got, got to Kamaman. It was early on the Sunday morning there was nobody about we didn't know where to go or anything so she was like right it'll be really hard to find a jo like Jones in the phone book because there'll be so many so we'll go, <laughs> we'll go for cable so got the phone book um, that was in the in the phone booth like they still had the phone books in there there was about 20 cables I think in there so she just started ringing them like started ringing cables going do you know where Stuart Cable lives like <laughs> and then amazingly someone was like yeah <laughs> like he lives up there like and like gave us the exact house number <laughs> so up we went yeah so we went up there just knocked on the door and Stuart opened the door and he was an absolute legend like he was just like oh come in come in like I think we were literally the first people out of town who'd probably ever just turned up and started knocking on their door maybe that I think actually I think we asked him and he said there'd been like one or two but not really hardly anyone so they weren't like annoyed by it yet <laughs> so they were still quite like oh yeah quite like that you know so he invited us in and like we met Nicola who is his wife um and you know she was lovely as well considering we were invading their home on a on a Sunday morning and yeah we and then we sort of <laughs> so we like stayed there quite a while like a, I think a good hour or something and then he was like oh do you want to go John see where like Kelly lives he's like oh Kelly oh I think maybe we said do you know where Kelly lives he's like yeah down there down in the valley and um, I don't think he gave us the exact address so we just went down and started driving around and just asked someone and she, do you know where Kelly Jones lives yeah there like <laughs> it's like amazing how <laughs> how open the people of Commandment were <laughs> they were obviously so proud of their of, of their you know of the band so yeah so then we knocked on Kelly's door and I remember his dad answered who looked exactly like him but 20 years older or 30 years old or whatever and again he was absolutely lovely he just like signed a load of stuff and just kind of gave us the time of day and we actually then we went we went back we probably went back there 
back to Kamam and I don't know, maybe four or five times. Like they were nearly always there. I remember the one time we went up and knocked on the door at Stuart's house. Um, and he's like, oh yeah, come in, come in. We went in and the whole band were in there <laughs> and all their girlfriends and their manager. <laughs> and, it, and it was, I was like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> like, like, cause I feel like we've definitely gone too far now. We're intruding on something, <laughs> but they were amazing. Again, we just stayed about an hour. They chatted to us and, you know, they were like, they were very, you know, obviously like weren't like bringing us into their fold, but they were very like polite and kind and gave us the time of day and left us, you know, we were driving off going, wow, that was amazing. You know, um, I don't know how sort of, um, tongue in cheek this is, but, um, myself and Jamie both went to, um, Kelly's solo shows recently were brilliant, you know, uh, sort of uh, songs from the extensive back catalogue sort of spliced with sort of anecdotes. And there was one moment where he said that um, the band was almost called the Mabel Cables at one point in homage to Stuart's mother. Um, he said, like, you know, they thought it sounded like Leonard Skinner. I don't know how sort of serious that was. Would have been amazing, wouldn't it? I think maybe actually that was how we found Stuart in the phone book. I think maybe, now you say it, I'm pretty sure maybe we rang his mum and she told us where he lived. Because <laughs> I think Mabel Cable, I think we knew maybe that Mabel Cable was his mum and when we got hold of Mabel Cable in the phone book, she, we just called her. <laughs> but it was just, it's like, it's so funny how, how easy it was to do, even in those days, <laughs> without any sort of social media and all that kind of stuff. I remember uh, watching... Um, like documentary like quite obsessively back in the day I think it was like a, a BBC Wales documentary about um, the, the the band before they you know they, they got big and there's a little anecdote in there that Kelly talks about when like Richard Branson was phoning them up trying to sort of coerce them to sign for V2 and he was like asking his um, you know Kelly Stewart or Richard there as if they all lived together like the monkeys or something <laughs> and just chatted them through and, and Kelly said he was just he was just glad that his mum didn't answer and say you know Richard Branson, he said, I and his, uh, his Elizabeth Taylor. Otherwise, <laughs> no. it wouldn't have happened. But V2, you know, um, resurrecting the, the old Virgin label, um, the first band to sign, I think, for, for V2. And that was quite a, uh, a very shrewd move by, by, by John Brand, the, the manager at the time, and, and the band, because I bet every bit of press, and they had a lot of press at the time, um, the V2 w- would have received that Stereophonics got a mention, and they were the most important band as opposed to being a, a smaller band on a bigger roster. How do you think that impacted them? Oh, yeah, I think it must have been you know, must have been so important. I mean, it's funny because I don't really know. I mean, it's probably changed beyond all recognition now. Like, I don't even really know, like, do bands even really sign to, you know, signed to labels like that now? I don't think, you know, it's everyone seems to release their own stuff and then maybe they, they get picked up by a bigger label or a publisher yeah yeah so yeah i mean obviously it's one of those things it's similar in you know in kind of the film industry that you know if you it's it's kind of the internal question do you do you have a a massive agent who is probably too busy for you but you're but you've got the kudos of a massive agent or you know or do you have a smaller agent who might give you way more attention and push you a lot harder but maybe doesn't have the same connection so obviously v2 was such a great blend of the two it was a brand new label but it was part of Virgin, so like it was, you know, you had that mega kudos, and yeah, they were the first in. So it'd be, I'd be interested, you know, you, you'll never know because times have changed. But it'd be interesting to see, like, if they just came about now, and they really just put their stuff on Spotify, like, would, what would have happened? You know, w- would you when uh, you were visiting um, the Phonics up in Commandment, Did you go to the Aberdeer Coliseum gig, which turned into a bit of an iconic gig, supporting Catatonia with uh, Johnny Owen's uh, band, the Pocket Devils? And uh, it was the night that John Brown went backstage and pretty much said, "I want to manage you." And um, yeah, more or less straight away, um, set off a bidding war where thirty-five record labels were vying for him. Yeah, no, I definitely wasn't there because I, I think I came to them after they were already signed, probably because, like I said, the first time I saw them, they were doing that Hillsborough gig, so they must have had something behind them to be to be on that bill. Um, but yeah, again, you know, 
I don't know, do those bidding wars exist anymore? You know, is that is that something you really hear about? Pretty Vicious was probably the last one in another Welsh band yeah. um, a couple of years ago and that obviously didn't turn out as, as well as, as the Stereophonics. You're right, the times have changed, but um, yeah, that was, a, that was a big deal at the time. Yeah, yeah but yeah. I mean, I remember, because I think that, that day we went up when they were well, the whole band and John and John Brand were in, in Stuart's kitchen, you know, like I had I had my band's demo on me and I was like, yes, you know, the demo was rubbish, it was badly recorded, <laughs> like, but I had still had to give it him. And I remember giving it him and then maybe, I can't, I vaguely remember like saying, like handing it over and say, you know, doing that thing where you hand something over and then explain why it's not as good as it could be, which is the worst thing you could ever do. Yeah, we recorded it in our, you know, in our garage and it's not, really, but you know, if you, if you see any potential, it's just like such a, like, you know, have some confidence in your own ability. But, <laughs> but I think that's the thing is that, you know, they got to that point where they were, had 35 record labels and some under the same sort of uh, larger umbrella but as, as you said earlier they, Neil it wasn't an overnight success um, it, was a, well, it was a very long night if it, if it was as, as, as Kelly said before but they used to do similar sort of things you know package up their demo tapes in sort of like Chinese takeaway boxes so we would sort of stand out and, and shoes and dirty shoes. shoes yeah just to you know just to um, keep keep it fresh I guess or, or, or not as the case may be with dirty shoes but um, they were getting a bit of money to go and record some some demos and things, and a lot of those demos made it onto on onto the onto the first album and, and produced by uh, Bird and Bush, um, I believe both New Zealanders, and they found them when they were playing, I think, in a in a gig in London, maybe the Borderline or something like that, and they went up to them and said, "Oh, look, we're we're record producers to Richard Jones. He's a card." And he was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, you know, another sort of." Typical sort of Welsh thing where you don't trust anyone <laughs> from London when you first go up sort of thing. But I think the production on the album's really interesting. It's, it's really pared back, um, definitely evokes the, the, the live style of, of the band. There's limited accompaniment in terms of um, other instruments. There's a couple of keyboards that, you know, Marsha Bird played on. There's a, there's a cello on B- Billy Davies' daughter, a um, bit of accordion on, on Not Up To You, but everything is ha- as it would have been live. Obviously, as the band progressed and moved into performance, the production got a little bit higher, as, you, as you'd imagine. Do you think that that production made the album? Yeah, I guess so. I think it is something that seems to be quite common with debut albums, doesn't it? You know, like we talked earlier about definitely maybe, you know, if that was overproduced, like it would have felt like a completely different thing. In fact, I vaguely remember, I might be making this up, <laughs> that there, you know, stories about how when they did record, definitely maybe it was overproduced and then actually they ended up going back to almost back to demos and stuff like that but those are the sorts of stories you hear a lot you know the the kind of rawness of word gets around if it had been too heavily produced and too sort of slick maybe wouldn't have had quite the same effect i don't know i guess you never know but definitely you know it's the energy in it was the most important thing i think and that's what came across yeah that links in nicely with uh, another huge album that came out exactly the same month as word gets around uh, be here now um where for many sort of oasis had moved away from their ideals of where they were sort of working class and on the dole um they were mega rich superstars you know world renowned names being now recorded on a mountain of cocaine songs clocking in at seven eight nine ten minutes guitar solo off guitar solo couldn't get more different really from uh word gets around yeah and that's definitely where i started losing interest in oasis probably as well like it's just and, and it wasn't like a conscious oh my god they're they're really successful now but it just didn't grab me in the same way as the other two had like it was you know the earlier albums had so yeah i definitely think there's 
there's just something about that it, those those first one or two albums from any band i think that like you you said earlier is probably the band at their most pure and and real and you know after that stage could they ever be the same again probably not not saying that means they're never as good again but they could never be the same as that again outside of the lyrics that we've spoken about in 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 detail today i think the other thing that stood out for me when when i first heard uh, stereophonics was Kelly's voice. It was so, I guess, different to everything that was was out there at the time. Um, obviously, had the sneer of of Liam, but that sort of like gravel in his throat. It, it sort of evoked memories of of maybe like Rod Stewart, and obviously with handbags and glad rags that they you know they covered that um, later on in their career. Can you remember the first time you heard that? And did did you have the same sort of sort of feeling about the voice? Yeah, totally. I remember going, "You lucky bastard!" Like that. What a voice! Like I, would, <laughs> and he looked like, good as well. Yeah, yeah. And he's, and he's a good-looking bloke. Yeah, you know, it's just oh man. Although that first time we went round his house, he was like, it was like a Sunday afternoon, and he was just like there and his like jogging bottoms <laughs> and socks with a hole in, you know. But he wasn't expecting us, but he still kind of pulled it off. <laughs> but yeah, like I, you know, I, I can't sing, and I've always wanted to sing. If this is like one thing I could, you know, I could change or whatever, it'd be that I could have, I could, I would have a great singing voice. But he hasn't just got a great singing voice. He's got such a unique singing voice. Like it's not just that he can sing really well and hold a tune and, and it sounds good. Like it just, you know, that, that, yeah, that gravel and that kind of So thing. soulful. Yeah, it's just well. incredible. But like, didn't, I remember like reading interviews where he said like it was because Stuart used to make him sing Led Zeppelin songs and he like basically ruined his vocal cords which gave him that gravelly thing. <laughs> I think it's like also that they made him be the singer because his dad was a singer, you know, supporting Roy Orbison back in the day. So it was sort of like, I don't think he wanted to, to be the singer, but I think he just sort of, your dad sings, so why don't you sing? You yeah. Know, that sort of thing. But I remember like some early documentary about the phonics, maybe the one you were talking about, there's like, they had a little clip of his dad singing and his dad didn't have that, vo- like, he's got a really lovely, sweet little yeah. voice. Like it was really lovely. Like, you know, was, um, might have just been again because of the era and the kind of songs he was singing, but the power of, of Kelly's voice is kind of like one of those things where you go, wow, where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's no doubt in um, the sort of strength of his um, his rock voice in terms of like, you know, Kelly, like, t- is, to me, is like Bartender and the Thief, Vegas two times, that real sort of gravelly voice, you know, spelting her out. But I think, certainly in the press, he's not given the recognition he deserves for the songs he really sings, like, you know, like stuff like Billy Davies' Daughter. Like, that, the last sort of minute or so of that is amazing. And even stuff like... Um, I don't know whether you've heard his cover of um, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. Amazing range. Yeah, and to be honest, those are kind of my favourite songs. Like like Billy Davies' Daughter, even like Same Size Feet, even though it's got a big anthemic bit as well, but the... It's the, the quiet bits because he's got so much power, but he's not using it in those moments. Like there's something quite like spine tingling about that. And that those are the moments that really kind of really got like spoke to me more than the big, powerful belting it out bits, which was obviously impressive. But is when you hear that voice being able to kind of be really emotive and being able to control it and bring it down. It's, it's the sort of subtle emotion as well, like the little bits of like cello and like that line, Billy's left with nothing but a dream, just a heartbreaking line. And um, I think it's as important um, as an end of the album as um, A Thousand Trees is opening it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I thought like quite an interesting choice to end the album on that yeah. because like a lot of albums, you know, you'll, they'll start big, they'll, They'll stay big for a few songs, then they'll go into like a nice little quiet bit in the middle, and then they'll go big again at the end, you know. Uh, but the, the to, I thought it was a really interesting choice to end on that. Yeah, it, it reminds me a bit, um, again, sorry to bring another Oasis comparison in, but starting definitely maybe the rock and roll start and then finishing it with Married with Children. 
Yeah, it's true, actually. Yeah, it's a really good shout. Yeah, because that is, again, you feel, you know, that felt quite unusual where it felt like a lot of albums really wanted you to finish on a on a high inverted commas you know so so talking of a high uh in terms of like for me it's like a sort of real sort of uh 10 points of lager on a saturday night fist in the air sort of you know album well maybe not 10 points but um and um there's some songs that i uh some you know become sort of ubiquitous and you get sort of get fed up of them but i'll never sort of get fed up of hearing um a thousand trees a tramp more life in the tramps of s look up on the photograph and i'm out um but underneath all the sort of amazing music, there's some quite sort of bleak themes, really. I mean, obviously, there's teacher sc- a sex and scandal on uh, The Thousand Trees, aging and loneliness on Looks Like Chaplin, small town mentality on Tramps Vest, uh, infidelity on Same Size Feet and suicide on Local Boy and Billy Davy. Yeah, I mean, they were really dark. It's a dark album, really. Like the, the, the actual content of the lyrics is really dark. But, but it was, in a way, I think, I don't know whether that was maybe what felt so real about it. Because it wasn't, again, I keep saying timing, but it was that thing of, you know, we just had like Oasis versus Blur and all that kind of stuff where, let's face it, like, you know, none of their lyrics are that amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, they're very different, very very different lyricists to, to Kelly Jones. Um, so it felt like a completely different kind of, felt like completely different kinds of lyrics, you know, completely different you know, the, the music wasn't like, I mean, the music's amazing, but wasn't like a completely different wheelhouse to what we were hearing, although it felt like really, you know, felt like a whole new thing. But it, that combined with the lyrics just made it feel like a whole new, unique thing, you know, like a, a three-piece band to create something that felt so different. I think when, when you're looking at, like, their observations of small town, you know, gossip and, and, and conversation and and things like that, that is... is is often not the positive things that people talk about. It is the the rumor and the death and oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I, 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 I've and, worked and on the newspapers up in Aberdeen and Merthyr, and it's exactly like on word gets around. Really, yeah. um, everyone knows each other's business. Everyone knows each other's names. There's people like on the on the doorsteps chatting. It's a, it's a different vibe to city life altogether. Yeah, but then there was all that weird thing after. Like, was it a couple of albums in where almost like the, Kelly's life became? There was all that stuff about oh, he's sleeping in his car and he's like his girlfriend's been cheating on him and all this like whether you know i don't i don't know the story behind any of it but all of that stuff and sorry kelly if you're listening (laughs) let's just boil all that back up but um just you know that it was weird how that almost felt like the lyrics of one of their songs like that all that gossip and yeah suddenly they'd become you know it was like you know reading all that in the tabloids because now they were they were tabloid fodder so they'd almost become you know they'd almost become the characters in their own lyrics in a weird way um yeah, it's funny because I so my my grand my my grandmother or my step grandmother, so she was she was from Merthyr, um, and I always remember it was after I'd done my few stints up to meeting the phonics, so I never had the chance to ask them this, but she she her and my granddad used to own a record store in Aberdeer, and she was adamant that she used to sell records to Kelly Jones. But I never knew whether that was true. She was like, <laughs> but they they definitely used to own a record store in Aberdeen. I don't know what it was called or anything. But and it would have been about the right era. My dad said that um, Ryan Giggs' dad used to take him to watch football, and that's where he gets his his skills from. <laughs> <laughs> Might be the same sort of thing. Um, so Kerry, mate, thank you so much for for joining us today um, and to talk about um, an album that means so much to you and and to the both of us as well. Um, thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks, Kerry. And we'll close with a bit of new music. Uh, this is a uh, solo artist uh, called Caffeine Kiss who sent in the opening track from his album 
Biopesis. Apologies if I haven't uh, pronounced that entirely correctly. But um, yeah, I love the sound of guitar. Really good riff to start off the track. Great vocal and um, sound to me just like a sort of perfect sort of Manic Street Preachers support act, really. But there's influences from other Welsh bands like um, The Alarm in there. And also um, Swedish Metalers Ghost, uh, Bowie and a bit of Springsteen and Prince as well. So enjoy. This is called Dress with the Flowers On. <laughs> 